On July 22nd, 1916, in San Francisco, there was a parade to be held uh, that afternoon. It was a World War I parade uh, to drum up sort of patriotism and preparedness for uh, U.S. entry into World War I. And there was a great deal of, uh, again, uh, patriotism and excitement. Folks could buy uh, banners and buttons and those kinds of things to prepare for this very patriotic uh, event. But the event wasn't uh, without criticism. And across town that night, folks in San Francisco could have heard Emma Goldman uh, give a speech to that crowd, not so subtly titled, Preparedness, the Road to Universal Slaughter. <laughs> she never got to give that talk because when the parade happened, uh, right around 2 p.m., about 50,000 people per participated in the parade, a bomb exploded. Uh, and it killed about 10 people. And it became this much larger story about cracking down on kind of the American left and critics of the war and anarchists and so on. So Goldman was there in San Francisco with his message of critique of the war and preparedness. But a few years earlier, she had come to Butte, Montana in 1908 and gave a speech at the auditorium there. And she juxtaposed herself with this kind of image of the American anarchist. She said, the devil is even more misrepresented and misunderstood than the speaker of the evening, meaning her. He has been misrepresented and misunderstood longer. The anarchist is dangerous to society, not because he practices and preaches violence, a dynamite, but because he makes you conscious of yourself. If a man disobeys the laws of society, then he is the devil. And so she was this kind of fiery figure amid this kind of moment in American history of great kind of uh, uh, turbulence. Capital and labor seemed at odds. War, of course, was imminent. And there were many on the left, including Goldman, who were some of the most prominent voices of that critique. Once called the high priestess of American anarchy, she, as many speakers did, crisscrossed the nation, speaking on behalf of anarchism, women's rights, against the war, against conscription, and much more. And I think these kinds of moments and these speeches and these talks, particularly in the American West and here in Montana, reveal a lot about this turbulent moment in American history. So I wanted today to kind of talk uh, uh, in two parts about what's happening here. First, maybe talk a little bit about Goldman and the contexts of anarchism and American anarchism, because it's really important. And then the second part is to kind of think about these on-the-ground visits to Montana, which I've been able to start to piece together um, a little bit. She came to Montana uh, at least 15 times between 1908 and 1914. So who is Emma Goldman? The name maybe some of you, uh, I hope, know. Uh, she was certainly one of the most recognizable faces uh, in the American left, for sure, or, or of the American left. She was the product of... Uh, Lithuanian parents who had immigrated um, to the United States in 1885. Um, her parents were Orthodox Jewish um, and herself as, as well. And it didn't take her long to kind of observe American society and get very interested in um, the laboring classes, the marginalized, and so on. And she very quickly uh, kind of turned radical talk and language and so on uh, into action. Um, for example, in, in October of 1893, uh, she got thrown in jail for the very first time 
Um, and this was in New York City for inciting a riot. Um, and so it wasn't her last time as well. She ended up spending 10 months incarcerated, and this always surprised me, released for good behavior, which I have a hard time believing. <laughs> but when she got out of jail in 1893, she was really starting to become one of these real figures in, in American anarchism and in the American left, for sure. Uh, she published an account of her time in prison, uh, and she started to embark on her very first national speaking tours. And she had been giving these speeches in part because, and interested in anarchism, because she had met this character, who I just put up here, uh, because he's really interesting. His name is Johann Most, and he was one of the founders of American anarchism. They befriended uh, one another in New York City in the 1890s, and so Most was sort of an ideological uh, mentor for her. They actually published a book together called Anarchy Defended by Anarchists, uh, and that came out in 1896. So right around this kind of period of the 1890s, uh, she started to uh, uh, make herself well-known and, and embark on some of these speaking tours, and the press would dub her the Prophetess of the Reds, which I think is a nice title. But she had adopted this ideology of anarchism, and it's worth me saying a few things uh, about what anarchism is. I say it, and you may shudder, uh, that's fine. Um, but it's an interesting kind of ideology, particularly in the late 19th and the early 20th century. In other words, you could be an anarchist sort of openly and you wouldn't be a kind of social pariah in the way that you might uh, if you were uh, now. And anarchism really got its start in the, in the wake of the French Revolution. People were really concerned in the wake of the reign of terror and, and kind of centralized power and uh, the kind of authoritarian ways that governments had sort of functioned in very surprising ways. And they were worried about strong centralized power uh, maybe going uh, astray or awry. Uh, and so uh, even the Encyclopedia Britannica started to define anarchism uh, in 1905, calling it a principle or theory of life and conduct which society is conceived without government. Harmony in such a society being obtained not by submission to law or by obedience to any authority, but by free agreements. So there was this kind of uh, anarchist challenge in the, in the uh, late 19th century uh, that was certainly kind of uh, uh, emerging. And the press recognized that it was becoming more popular to be an anarchist uh, and to believe in these ideas of harmony and so on. Uh, often considered in the press uh, at the time, sometimes characterized as, quote, a man who spent his time exploding bombs, uh, anarchists were much more complex than that. Uh, and that was an image that started to uh, appear in the press, and it didn't always hold true. Um, there were all kinds of European anarchists who influenced American thinkers. There's no test. A slide like this always makes people nervous. Uh, but these are really interesting uh, thinkers in Europe who uh, had informed American anarchism, Proudhon, Bakunin, uh, and Kropotkin, all interesting characters. But the part you really have to know about anarchism and this kind of transnational idea uh, that's coming to the United States is the idea of propaganda of or by the deed, which uh, Goldman would have really ascribed uh, to. Uh, it came from an Italian anarchist, uh, Carlo Piscane, who proposed that there needed to be kind of these moments to wake up the masses, laborers in other words, or, or otherwise. In other words, uh, some kind of act, a bombing like in San Francisco, an assassination, something like that, that might prove the real moment to inspire uh, radical uh, change. Uh, so it's a really kind of interesting ideology. And if you know anything about uh, American and certainly world history, you know that there's a string of assassinations that happens in the late 19th century. Uh, a number of European monarchs and so on, German Emperor Wilhelm I, the King of Spain, Alfonso XII, 
um, uh, Italy's King Umberto and the Russian Tsar Alexander II. And so anarchism was a very uh, vibrant and certainly clearly in the minds of many Europeans, and it seemed like it was coming to the United States. To bring it back to Goldman, of course, the assassination of William McKinley in Buffalo, New York in 1901 uh, drew great attention to American anarchism and also to Emma Goldman. Of course, it was the act of Leon Czaglosz, right, this Polish uh, anarchist who committed the deed. Uh, but it raised a lot of questions about who might be implicated and involved uh, nationally. And Goldman got arrested in Chicago for being particularly uh, uh, maybe a, um, a part of this movement. The problem for Goldman was that Chaglosh, the guy who kills McKinley, had heard Emma Goldman speak on one of these speaking tours in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, according to his account, this speech set him on fire, uh, that he was really interested uh, in doing something for um, the cause. And so they questioned Goldman. Uh, she was uh, brought in uh, by Chicago police uh, and interrogated for uh, her uh, involvement. Uh, the police were unable to prove any kind of vast conspiracy as much as they would have liked to uh, generate that, and she'd be ultimately released. But that was before... In the newspaper, uh, they reported that while she was being interrogated, she, quote, became a woman pure and simple and cried. In other words, to try to sort of make her look weak. And I don't believe that uh, for a second that she cried. Uh, but it was part of this, uh, uh, again, kind of uh, um, uh, emasculation that was trying to happen here, or this at least marginalization that was starting to happen. Uh, of course, you know that this uh, sent sh shockwaves through the country. Uh, not far from where I live in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt was holding a massive uh, ball, uh, and they got news of the McKinley assassination. And they played the national anthem, and he said to the audience, the party is over. Uh, and he meant literally, and then he meant also, of course, figuratively. It's a really powerful moment uh, in American history. So, of course, Goldman has to... Uh, take a much lower profile after the McKinley assassination. She founded a journal called Mother Earth, which she published in New York City. And then she, of course, started crisscrossing the nation on speaking tours. Uh, and you can see here uh, uh, this. I don't know if there's a laser on this. I hope there is. Oh, yeah, here's Goldman here uh, addressing uh, a crowd. And I should say, and this is really important, I think, to point out, the fact that she was making these tours to Montana and elsewhere was part of kind of the American political culture of the day. It's really uh, important for radicals and non-radicals alike. Uh, Eugene Debs uh, crisscrossed the nation speaking aboard his uh, train. He was, of course, the Socialist Party of America's candidate uh, five times, once from jail. Uh, and he uh, boarded a train called the Red Special and gave speeches. And people would go to speeches and listen to these talks for two or three hours in a way that we're just not conditioned to in the modern kind of political soundbite. And so I think it's really important to kind of contextualize that. William Jennings Bryan, another character you know, uh, crisscrossed the nation in 1896 doing what his campaign called merchandising. Uh, he traveled uh, basically about 18,000 miles, giving over uh, 600 speeches uh, on behalf of the cause. So I think it's an important uh, point to make. But in the articles in Mother Earth, she talked about this experience of the tours themselves. Uh, and she wrote articles like On the Road, that's the title of one of them, and another one was called En Route. Uh, and she kind of talked about this experience of crisscrossing the nation uh, and kind of uh, uh, the exercise of giving these political speeches. She was also, by the way, a very nervous speaker before these crowds. She was famous for taking a shot of whiskey before each talk to sort of settle the nerves. Uh, I did the same thing today. <laughs> Once on stage, though, 
um, she was very famous for sort of having this uh, gumption and the anxiety gave way and she really had a rhetorical skill uh, by most uh, or all accounts. Uh, and it was also um, not easy to notice her and these images kind of give you a sense here. She wasn't uh, particularly uh, tall. She was under five feet tall so she's surely standing on that car or a box or something uh, to be able to see her. Uh, newspapers wrote about her as an insignificant person in appearance. Uh, which I think is interesting, but when she took the podium, uh, she was a uh, completely different person, uh, that's for sure. So she quickly gained the attention of an audience with a clear, strong, and committed voice. Uh, her favorite targets, not surprisingly probably to you, became religion, organized religion. I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. The press, the president, and the war itself. Passive workers who hadn't organized and started to rise up and so on, she said, were fools and slaves for failing to really assert their rights. So she was a persistent agitator in this kind of context of American anarchism, and she started to make her mark on the American West. Uh, and she grew particularly fond of San Francisco. Uh, before she ended up in Montana, she was there. She found San Francisco really delightful. She said the California wines were cheap and stimulating. So she liked San Francisco a lot. And she admired and appreciated the commitment of like-minded agitators there in San Francisco. They balanced their own activism and ideology and so on with what she called love, drink, and play. Uh, Emma Goldman was kind of a famous uh, advocate of free love and drink and so on, so uh, she would have been a good time. There's also a very famous apocryphal story about Goldman, a quote that's usually ascribed to her, uh, and the quote, you'll see it on t-shirts and buttons and so on, that says, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. So she really had a kind of free spirit uh, to her. She arrived in San Francisco in April of 1908. Uh, and when she first arrived there, police were keeping a very close eye on her. Probably no surprise to all of you. She loved the fact that about 500 anarchists, a big community of anarchists, lived uh, in San Francisco. Uh, and as soon as she arrived, uh, she started giving very fiery uh, speeches uh, there. Um, and there's a famous account when she first got to her first hotel, the Palace Hotel uh, in San Francisco. Her reputation had preceded her, of course. She had been followed by police from Sacramento. She gets to San Francisco um, and they started to give her trouble about her room and so on. The police, chief of police shows up. Uh, so she was a person of note and she signed in at the hotel register, according to newspaper accounts, with a flourish and stormed off. <laughs> Uh, but she was kind of trailed by police wherever uh, she went, uh, under very close guard. Um, and she gives a number of speeches in San Francisco. Some of the audiences, uh, by most accounts, are about 1,000 people. Uh, and you would have to account, by the way, about 50 policemen uh, in that 1,000, and that's typical. She said, I'm proud I'm an anarchist, a sane and philosophical anarchist. And the crowd roared when she said, but I delay and deny that I would be ashamed to admit that I am a newspaper anarchist. The anarchism of the untruthful press is too much for me. So in other words, the way that they were characterizing anarchism in the press was something simplistic and uh, misunderstanding it. Of course, local papers who would have been more conservative just dismissed these speeches like the Sacramento Union did as simply something called the anarchist queen's vaporings, dismissive as vaporings. <laughs> Well, the city was a perfect stop in between her tours, and often she was uh, in residence in San Francisco, might come to a place like Montana and then go back. 
I'll tell you one more quick story. A friend of hers rented her apartment uh, in uh, San Francisco for her. Uh, and uh, you know, she said, oh, this is going to be this anarchist woman. Uh, and they said, well, as long as she doesn't practice in the apartment, it's all right. <laughs> so she comes to Montana lots of times. And here's another talk. And I'm just going to move uh, quickly. If you don't know this character, I'll just mention this. Her friend and longtime lover was this character, Alexander Berkman, who's famous for the attempted assassination uh, attempt. Um, of uh, uh, Henry Clay Frick in Pennsylvania, and um, you should you should know him for sure. He's in San Francisco uh, with her, uh, and again they're on again, off again lovers. So she has an apartment there with Berkman. The other thing I'll tell you about Berkman uh, is that he published a newspaper in San Francisco. Goldman has a hand in that. It is also not so subtly titled "The Blast." <laughs> I think that gives you a sense, perhaps, um, of their uh, ideology and leanings. So that's all the kind of anarchism speaking tour context that I think is really important to understanding uh, some of these episodes or moments uh, in uh, Montana for sure. So by way of overview about the activism in Montana, she gave no less than 15 talks uh, here in the Treasure State uh, from 1908 to 1914. Uh, and I have to be a dutiful historian and cite my work and my help. I've had a great graduate student who has helped me kind of piece together uh, some of these moments. And um, her name is Amanda uh, Belenza, and she's a master's student at Providence and has had a lot of fun uh, kind of tracking some of these moments and so on. So OK, full disclosure, and now uh, that, that's that. She's, she's been a big help. Uh, she came almost every summer, and she came to the places that you might expect. She most often came to Butte, given the labor kind of working class environment there, and that wouldn't surprise you. Uh, but she also came to Helena as well, and I'll talk more about this. But from the start, the visits to Montana were not without controversy, and that too shouldn't surprise you given um, some of the context uh, that I mentioned. She first arrived in Montana in the summer of 1908, and she spoke on a number of topics. On June 4th, she gave an address one evening in Butte on what she called the revolutionary spirit in modern drama, which I find so interesting. And sometimes these talks were, what is anarchism, or something like this. But sometimes there were also this kind of mix of thinking about literature and culture and so on in a way that is really informed and well-read and so on. The next afternoon on June 5th, she spoke at Carpenter's Hall in Butte on an array of topics, including the American prison system, which she saw as a great uh, injustice, the press, of course, that wouldn't surprise you, and Butte itself, and really focusing on economic conditions and social conditions. Uh, and so on. And all of her visits, um, and I can say that uh, pretty unequivocally, I think, uh, to Montana, she was accompanied um, in places like Butte, of course, as you see here, almost always at her side was this character, Ben Reitman. Uh, he's a really interesting character because he was kind of her road manager and he was also her lover. Uh, and so it's you know, sort of a, you know, on Facebook we'd call it complicated. There's this issue with, with Berkman, and now you've got Ben Reitman, and then you've got, uh, uh, of course, Emma Goldman. Um, and he would come to places like Butte and Helena and so on in these uh, talks with her, um, and he was pretty famous for sort of scooting out of the back of the room and having a short tryst with a local woman and then coming back before her talk was over. So he was kind of a dastardly character. But anyway, we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. I'll show you some more pictures of Reitman in just a second. On June 7th, she spoke uh, in Butte on a topic called What Anarchism Stands For, so your kind of basic stump speech. Uh, and then in the afternoon at the Broadway Theater in Butte, she spoke on the topic of the menace of patriotism. People like Goldman and on the left were really concerned 
uh, about conscription and the road to war uh, and who would really end up doing the fighting in a war uh, and so on. So that's why there was that critique. So that was some of the 1908 summer visits. She got an invite to come back to Butte later that year by a character by the name of Lewis Duncan. And if you know a little bit about Butte political history, you know this character because, of course, he will be elected the socialist mayor of Butte and serve in that capacity from 1911 until he is uh, removed uh, because of the Western Federation of Miners stuff uh, in 1914. Um, really interesting character. He was also a person interested in Shakespeare and tutored Shakespeare and lectured on Shakespeare. He was also a Unitarian minister. And so in these early days, before he's a politician interested in kind of social justice and so on, he invited Goldman to come to Butte um, and speak from his pulpit in church. And this created a great controversy. And so they had to have an emergency meeting of the Unitarian Church board to figure out if this would be okay to have Goldman come. Uh, and despite the invitation, he had to rescind that invitation. She was deemed kind of too hot for the Unitarian uh, pulpit, and they went instead with a socialist by the name of Charles Leonard um, to preach uh, that day, which I think is kind of uh, interesting. So she's always controversial uh, at hotel check-ins and planned events and all of these kinds of things. Uh, and these events in Helena uh, became more and more intense and uh, complicated. Also, uh, around this time, she got another uh, invitation, and there was a West Coast manager that she had in addition to uh, Reitman, and I don't know if there was any romance here, by the way, uh, by a guy, a guy by the name of Alexander Hoare, H-O-R-R, who oversaw a lot of these visits and so on. And he was working um, with folks in Helena for her to speak at the Electric Hall, uh, June 22nd and June 23rd. But there was a planned event on June 24th that became particularly controversial. Montana socialists had invited her to come and engage in a debate, a public debate, between her and some of the leaders uh, of the Montana Socialist Party. In fact, the person that she was to debate was this woman, Ida Crouch Hazlitt. Really interesting character. She was one of the editors of the Montana News, which was a socialist paper um, out of Helena, and had recently found herself in hot water because her and another party member couldn't account for about $550 of the newspaper. And so she was uh, uh, kind of reprimanded for that and already a controversial uh, figure. But they were to have uh, this public debate uh, in Helena um, and at um, the, uh, the city auditorium. And so the socialists themselves, uh, and this is kind of a recurring theme, couldn't get along and they were divided on who should debate Goldman and so on. And you had this controversy about uh, where those funds were and so on. And, and uh, their membership sinks to about 200 people by, ar by around this debate. Um, but behind the scenes, what's really interesting, with Goldman advertises coming to town, uh, there instead was a response. And there were Republicans on the Helena City Council who objected to Goldman coming and being able to engage in this kind of a public event. Uh, they rejected the plan at the auditorium. The City Council took up the issue. And they were being pressed by the Grand Army of the Republic uh, and its members, kind of telling them that this tour uh, was dangerous. And in fact, wherever she went, and including what would happen in Helena, she would be, quote, inciting riot and bloodshed. And so this event shouldn't be allowed to go forward. Uh, and again, they talked about her philosophical anarchy and so on. And they moved ahead, and they talked about this kind of un-American uh, um, activity and so on. And um, as the auditorium was the property of Helena's citizens, um, any denial of her to speak there, so said the Goldman camp, 
would have been a violation of the Constitution at the state level and the federal Constitution. So it was this kind of debate about whether or not they would be able to. When they showed up, Goldman and Hazlitt, despite all of this consternation, this won't surprise you, the building was locked. <laughs> Goldman reportedly muttered, quote, undertoned uh, about the right to free speech and what an abomination this was. Uh, and she chose instead to just start speaking outside. If she can't get in, she'll talk to the crowd out there. The police chief, a guy by the name of J.F. Flannery, apparently stopped her. People gathered. Crouch Hazlitt started to address the audience, defended Goldman and her constitutional right to speak, because they're both on the left, generally, right? And so Hoare started to address the crowd and so on. The story goes that a runaway horse and buggy came by, and so it was this kind of Keystone Cops moment, and then people started to follow that. Um, and of course, when the throng gave chase, both uh, Goldman and Ida Crouch Hazlitt just left. So nothing uh, came of it. Um, she would eventually return um, in December and spoke again in Helen and again in Butte uh, on a variety of different topics. She came back to Montana in 1910. Um, she delivered about 120 lectures in 25 states, Montana being of them, and I think that's again part of that context of this political culture. People liked, believe it or not, to listen to talks that were an hour and a half or two hours. I know this is already painful, but imagine, uh, imagine uh, uh, the kind of attentiveness this would have required. She's a really great speaker. So we can move to kind of 1912 to 1914, which were her last forays into Montana. By the summer of 1912, she again returned uh, to Butte. Here is another image you can see here. Debate is scheduled, police stop Emma Goldman, and you know how that story um, turned out. Uh, she came back in 1912, in the summer of 1912, to Butte, and she again marveled at the crowds that she got in Butte. Uh, and really just the kind of loyalty and attentiveness that she got there. She wrote in her journal in July of 1912, Butte, Montana proved a great treat. It brought us back to the warm, tender days and friends of old days. When I look back upon the human panorama that passed my gaze during the last 23 years, it has remained pure and true in its idealism, in spite of the economic grind, poor health, and all sorts of adversities, which merely proves that character is stronger than environment, stronger than external forces. So she always marveled at how resilient the population in Butte was. And this affection uh, with her for Montana was sometimes mutual. Not only did she often fill lecture halls, uh, but editorial uh, coverage was actually pretty favorable of her talks and her ability to captivate an audience. Uh, they wrote that she filled the auditorium from gallery to platform, and that at one of the collections, because of course these events aren't free, which raises another issue, usually at 10 cents a quarter, something like this, uh, it is thought, wrote one paper, that it was the largest collection ever tendered to a Goldman lecture. In other words, she made more for one talk in Butte than she might have made at any other lecture in the country. Goldman took part in three indoor meetings in Butte during late 1912, uh, which for her, quote, made up in quality what they lacked in quantity, so she didn't always get huge crowds. Uh, and she had one particular street meeting in Butte on behalf of San Diego. And the reason that that happened, they were trying to raise money for free speech advocates in San Diego. San Diego, later Spokane, Washington, lots of cities in the West and actually around the country got embroiled in the right to free speech and people got thrown, up, uh, thrown in pens and so on and, and that's a whole other issue. But this became a cause for her, the right to free speech, regardless of ideology uh, for those talks to happen. And she didn't care for these outdoor meetings, by the way. She was convinced 
um, that the competing noise and all of those kinds of things and the shorter attention spans of crowds uh, was a problem. But she did notice that in Butte, when she spoke outside, that was an exception. She claimed she had 1,500 people at one of these events in 1912 in Butte, quote, glued to the spot. Now she's, of course, describing her own talk, right? So she's uh, perhaps biased. But still, she thought so they were all uh, glued to the spot for over two hours. And she said it was inspiring. This is my seventh visit here, she wrote. I've always found Butte a city where I was treated nicely. The socialists I know are in control of the city government. That's the Duncan administration. But they're finding what I've claimed all along that they can do little through political action. I have little faith in accomplishing anything through political methods. So she couldn't resist taking a stab at people like Duncan who thought winning elections might be the path to real change, where she's thinking something completely different. She came back to Montana in August of 1913, uh, just before her arrival in Montana. And I have to tell you this, she got arrested in Seattle about two weeks earlier. Uh, she was uh, arrested there for distributing pamphlets without a license. Uh, and this is the way that city governments tried to restri restrict leftist speech by saying you've got to have a permit, uh, if you can imagine that, to distribute literature. Um, so she was arrested um, there. So in Montana this time, in 1913, she spoke on another number of topics. The growing danger of the power of the church. Uh, it was the same lecture that she had given in New York uh, at the Women's Trade Union League not long before this. And so we have text of some of this speech and so on. But she got really interested in the power and influence of organized religion, particularly the church, meaning the Catholic church. And, and this stemmed from a Spanish theorist by the name of Francisco Ferrer. And a lot of these uh, anarchists were particularly well read about all of this stuff. And he was a communist uh, who was often very critical of the church in Spain and so on. He was ultimately executed in 1909. Uh, but he loved to talk about the evils of the church. And Goldman uh, was inspired on, on that topic for sure. She talked about the growing power of the church again as the title uh, of the talk. And she liked to talk about this kind of commodification of religion uh, and how it had become a business almost instead of more than spirituality. In response to this, a local minister by the name of Reverend Frank Hopkins scathingly denounced these attacks on organized religion in general, notably saying this, that according to the enemies of my creed, I'm a fool. I'm willing to admit it. I have no use for Emma Goldman or her teachings. So don't think that there wasn't, uh, of course, pushback uh, to Goldman. And it is worth noting this, too. Um, and this happens a lot in the press and so on, that... As a radical Jewish immigrant, the, if we're talking about um, the issue of religion, she was often the scourge of conservatives and the press, sometimes in very explicit ways. The New York Sun wrote about her, for example, and described her as shrewd, who for many years has made anarchy a well-paying profession. And if you read these kinds of comments closely, you'll start to see this kind of strain of anti-Semitism. The article further spoke of her, quote, money-grabbing proclivities. And in 1916, she chaired a meeting of what was uh, a number of leftist causes in New York. And the New York Times dubbed them socialists, anarchists, and other ists. Very <laughs> dismissive. One of the observers said they, quote, talked in Yiddish as they critiqued the war. And that was important for them to mention, for obvious kind of discriminatory reasons. 
Well, the following summer, during August 16th to August 19th, 1914, she again came back and had five more trips and visits to Butte. By the way, these pictures all look very similar, but I promise you that they're actually a little different. One, she's got her hand like this. One, she's got like this. So if you think Johnson's cheating, I promise that I'm not. No, thank you for asking that. Full disclosure, no. Because, and one of the problems is that you can't find a lot of, A, accounts of this because anarchists um, sometimes don't have like meeting records and that wouldn't surprise you. Uh, and often the photos are pretty limited too. So I, uh, yeah, thanks for asking that. This is kind of just to give you a sense of what these might have looked like. Uh, five more meetings in Butte on one last trip, as I mentioned. And by this point, the real, and of course the conference theme, the real target for all of this became um, ultimately um, the war itself and critiques of the war uh, because that was really a central issue and you saw that critique come out in San Francisco and that is a continual point of contention uh, for the American left. Um, they were particularly concerned about this notion of quote preparedness uh, and people like Teddy Roosevelt and Elihu Root and many others started to say in 1913 and 1914 the US Army which was woefully small needed to be prepared and ready if the US entered the war in Europe. And of course, as you all know, we don't enter the war until, of course, the year for this conference, 1917. But people on the left, like Goldman, were very concerned. Because if you read your Marx carefully, you know that all wars are capitalist wars. And they will benefit the fat cats, say people like Debs or Goldman and so on. And the people who will do the fighting, of course, are the rank and file. They certainly are not the Vanderbilts and Morgans of the world. So preparedness was a real scourge for the left. And the other kind of subpoint that I would make about this is that when she's in Butte talking about preparedness and so on, she's very interested and, and, and very critical of the notion of conscription. Uh, because if you're going to have a draft, it really hits home on, on who uh, uh, might uh, be uh, conscripted and forced into uh, service. So she's very critical of this notion of preparedness. So uh, she's now in Montana, uh, and again, giving a number uh, of speeches and so on. And she marveled, now this is in contrast to those speeches of 1908, where she was already sort of impressed. By 1914, she says, radicalism has grown beyond all bounds since those days, talking about Montana. When compared with some of the radical speakers and crack brain spouters who've been haranguing the crowds in halls and streets, cornered, I'm sorry, I'm gonna restart that quote. <laughs> You would think most professors can read, but sometimes we're not so good at it. This is a quote about Goldman. So let me just contextualize this better. I didn't say that. She'd once been considered one of the nation's most right, dangerous people. Now, the quote was, radicalism has grown beyond all bounds since those days of 1908. When compared with some of the radical speakers and crack-brained spouters who have been haranguing the crowds in halls and on street corners within the last year or two, Emma Goldman may be considered mild and harmless. So there's a real transition there from the early days of her reception to this period now where she's just sort of seen as a crack-brained spouter. And that's 19, again, 1913, 1914. And the reason she's considered harmless is because the shine on the American left uh, is kind of wearing off. And you can see here, this is one of these uh, talks here for one of these uh, later events. And in the center here, this is Reitman. Uh, and you probably recognize him. And Hoare, I think, is this guy here. I mean, I'd have to check that. 
Uh, but isn't this great? I mean, very few pictures to your, to your question, uh, but this one I was able to find an actual sign for the talk in Butte um, uh, with Reitman front and center. But the shine had started to wear off, and the reason it had worn off, of course, is this patriotic movement toward World War I, which seemed absolutely, uh, at this point, uh, inevitable. And if you know anything about this uh, kind of critique of the war, there starts to be a real concerted effort to start to crack down on leftists in lots of different ways. Uh, maybe the most, uh, of course, notable is that period of the Red Scare uh, from 1919 to about 1921. And if you look at this kind of an image, you can see very clearly uh, you've got Lady Liberty here being threatened by this European anarchist, whatever that means, with a bomb, of course, in his hand. And if you look at him, he sort of looks swarthy and so on, and there's lots of subtext to an image like this. So those who had opposed the war and conscription, like Goldman and Berkman and so on, found themselves in a lot of hot water. And because if, if you've uh, read a little bit about the Red Scare, You've got the Alien and Sedition Act, or the Alien Act and the Sedition Act. Any kind of loyalty speech was deemed questionable. Um, those speeches could just be stopped, for example. Uh, and there are all kinds of accounts of people being critical of uh, the Salvation Army or the Secretary of War, and these are people who again get thrown in jail for those kinds of really incendiary uh, comments. And Goldman and socialist newspapers and so on, like the International Socialist Review and the Appeal to Reason and so on, a lot of those publications simply can't get mailed. So it absolutely means, um, by this point, um, the left starts to be deemed mild and harmless. So it's really uh, important to understand. Alexander Berkman's paper, The Blast, uh, was part of that. Uh, it's an amazing resource, and I've got all of them. And then it very curiously ends uh, right around January of 1918. And there's no accident why, right? Because the government is suppressing uh, leftist speech, for sure. So the Red Scare is really important, and it's really important for Goldman and Berkman. They're both deported. They're put on a boat called the USS Buford, uh, and they are sailed to Europe with 249 leftists aboard. Um, they called it the Soviet Ark. So it was this expulsion of troublemakers like Goldman, like Berkman, uh, and so on. So Goldman lives out her days in the south of France, not quite uh, Monaco, but Saint-Tropez for a while. Uh, and Alexander Berkman actually uh, settles uh, a couple of towns over. I think he was in Nice for a while and elsewhere. They both die um, in Europe. Uh, she'll actually be uh, buried in Chicago. Um, the leftists and labor forces there, because of Haymarket and that rich tradition, ask for her remains to be brought back and put uh, in Chicago for burial. But I think Emma Goldman, not without controversy, left her mark uh, in American history on the American West. And for sure, uh, at a number of these brief moments in Montana, and I think her appearances and her travels seem to represent not only this broader political culture, but I also think this Western struggle over labor and free speech and immigration, social justice, and the meaning uh, of what it means uh, to be an American. So I'll stop there. Thank you so much.